Hi, this is Ivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. I am obsessed with slumberkins. They're these collections of stuffed animals and loveys that come with books. And they're so much more than that. Slumberkins were developed by a therapist and an educator using research-based techniques to help teach children how to understand and support their feelings. So these are almost emotional intelligence teaching animals. My kids are just obsessed. I mean, they fight over all of these things so much. And each one comes with a book. And in the book, you do things like recite your feelings and uh, learn about different emotions. There's the caring crew of animals, the confidence crew. There's the resilience crew. It's really amazing. They have great gifts for newborn parents. And they're giving my listeners and followers Zibby 10, 10% off your first purchase. The code is Zibby 10. So go to slumberkins.com check it out. Your kids will love them. And you will love the fact that they help the kids fall asleep better. They create an activity that you can do with your kids, reading, reciting. They even have like digital books that you can do as activities with your kids. I am just such a huge fan of this brand and what it does for families and how it will help kids and also the fun that it brings into the household. So go to Slumberkins, code Zibby10 will get you 10% off your first purchase. Enjoy! Meg Mason is the author of Sorrow and Bliss, a novel. She says in her bio, Meg is a writer, to begin with, of newspapers, the Financial Times and the Times London, then of magazines, Vogue, Elle, Marie Claire, GQ, Sunday Style, and the New Yorker's Daily Shouts. Now she is a writer of books. Her first novel, You Be Mother, was published in 2017, then Sorrow and Bliss, first published in Australia in 2020 and the U.S. in February 2021. It will be released in the U.K. in June. Welcome, Meg. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Sorrow and Bliss. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. Would you mind telling listeners what your novel is about? Sure. I'm getting better at this. It's so difficult to tell someone in such a short, you know, I'm like, I can kind of do an elevator pitch as long as the elevator is stalled. That's kind of where I'm up to. It has to be a stuck elevator. It's to me, it's a love story about Martha and Patrick. It's the love story kind of told from the very beginning of their relationship when they're teenagers, when they first meet each other, all the way to Martha's early forties, when the book opens and things seem to be on their last legs in terms of their relationship. Within that, it pivots on mental illness is a strong theme that runs through it. That is why, you know, we've arrived at the point where where they both seem to be at their end. And then I think as well through exploring that it's a coming of age because a delayed coming of age because Martha at 40 kind of has to make these decisions that finally force her to grow up in a way that I think a lot of us experience, I think, you know, the idea that a coming of age occurs when you're a teenager, you know, just about to enter college, 18, 
you drive across country. That didn't do it for me. Do you know what I mean? That's not when I grew up. It was much later than that after life had had its kind of way with me. Do you know what I mean? Like marriage and children and all of those things. That's what forces you to kind of feel like, oh, no one's coming to save me. You know, no one's coming to rescue me. And you're faced with these decisions of how do I proceed? And I think that's where we meet Martha. So it's those three things tied together. Wow. So, and where did this book come from? Where did the idea come from? And by the way, I love that you have a whole passage in here (laughs) when she is thinking, when Martha is thinking about writing and is annoyed that people always think that her autobiographical (laughs) work is autobiographical. And (laughs) I'm like, well, I can't ask her now if it's autobiographical because in this book, even her character says it's not autobiographical. (laughs) It's 70%. No, it's fine. I think there are some little jokes through there that I just, I guess I snuck them in. This is my third book and I guess I kind of, you know, the the extent to which Martha is, you know, there are parts of her that, of course, are based on things I've experienced. And I think all authors have a really tricky relationship with that question, because I always feel like if anyone wants to ask me anything, then I'm lucky because, you know, they could also equally well not be interested and ignore the book completely. And so, you know, I think it's an interesting question. I've asked it of authors myself as a journalist, but it's so hard because we're so you know, it's that mixture. It's imagination. I'm answering it for you right now. (laughs) It's partly imagination. It's partly, you know, things that you've seen or witnessed. And especially for me, you know, this kind of ties into where the book came from, but this was my Hail Mary pass of of a novel. This was going to be the last one. It wasn't even going to exist. And so anything that I'd felt, heard, seen, it all went in there within these characters. But then as well, I think authors are so insecure and so prideful it's a funny combination which I think Anne Lamott has kind of talked about that we have these enormous egos and yet we're so insecure that when someone assumes that it must just be you with the names changed you feel like you don't think I'm capable of doing anything other than you know the thinly veiled things so you know that's why it's you know uneasily and that's why I snuck a little reference into that I guess anticipating the question slightly but no I'm very happy to answer it where the book came from is I guess like the ash heap of my career would probably be the most realistic way to describe it. It's just, yeah, the potted summary is that I'd spent all of 2018 on a novel that I got to the end and I knew it had been wrong since maybe February and I couldn't just give up. And then the more words you acquire, you know, that you build, then you can't give it up once it's 40,000. And then, you know, at 60,000, you're like, oh, I wish I'd just got rid of it at 40. You know what I mean? But it keeps going and it keeps going. And you know, as a writer, especially if it's your first book, you know, it's hard. You know, it's not, you know, there will be bad days, but there was only bad days. And that showed so clearly on the page. And I arrived at the end. It was sort of due in a week. I think it was, you know, 85,000 words by then. And and it was just bad. It was just, you know, and, and it wasn't me being like, oh, it's terrible. And I want my publisher to tell me it's great. It was, I didn't even want her to read it, which is what the note said that I attached to it. And then, yeah, it was just that I was showing it to her to be like, I tried. And so I'm quitting having tried. And how do I give you an advance back, especially an advance that I had spent many months ago. And that was going to be tricky. So she was amazing. I don't know how publishers do it because, you know, to mop up the emotion and to just sort of tell you it's going to be all right and to not put any pressure on me to be like, well, go away and redraft it, you know, start over and do it again. She just let me go. And I just, you know, it sounds so dramatic and ridiculous, but I did have this grieving period because this is what I wanted to do with my life. I remember writing my first novel when I was eight and, you know, it's still somewhere in a shoebox on my granny's word processor. She used to, she must have loved it because I went into her little 
study for hours and hours and hours to you know work on my work on my craft and anyway so then of course you know a few weeks pass and the idea that became that first section in the book at um, Martha and Patrick at a wedding I just it just came you know those little scenes and pictures just drop into your mind I don't know where and I wrote it down and then somehow it just opened some sort of floodgates, I think. But again, it was months until I had showed anyone, told my publisher, even considered it as a novel. But because that's where I think that tone comes from and that kind of very, compared to what I've done before, the tone is quite straight. There's no novelizing in there. There's no me trying to perform to an audience. It's just, I just let Martha tell this story of hers as though she was speaking to you. So, you know, if I was chatting to you, I wouldn't be ramming my sentences full of adverbs and, you know, exciting adjectives instead of just walking and sitting and eating, which is what, you know, that's the sort of language she uses. So I think, but I'm so glad that that was the upshot of that work style because I think that the danger with a book about mental illness is that it would be overwhelming if I was trying to perform with the writing as well you know this material can be really heavy and it's quite emotional in and of itself of course so if I was trying to amp that up instead of tone that down with this funny prosaic language I think people would have been like oh gee you do I mean by kind of chapter two it's too hard I think I need some Nora Ephron so it's somehow that's how it evolved. And here we are, I guess. Wow. Well, that was a really interesting answer. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) Wow. Well, I think that this type of writing deserves just as much credit. I mean, this was an, like you get immersed immediately into Martha's consciousness and you go through it all with her. And just because the words aren't SAT words or aren't (laughs) multisyllabic in every single chance doesn't mean it's not as effective. I mean- I think that's your point as well. But I don't know. I found it. I wasn't sitting here reading it thinking like, oh, this is so unliterary. <laughs> this is so basic. She's so yeah, basic. It doesn't feel basic at all. In fact, it feels like so you're so witty. Like, I love that sort of like British wit. I don't know how you all like <laughs> somehow it's like so much funnier than anybody in America, the way your sense of humor. I'm just going to group it as an entire nation or something. Oh, do it. Absolutely. I'm so happy to be class because I'm actually, well, I'm a New Zealand born writer, but I live in Australia. So I, I guess I have somehow from being in okay, London so for not, a few not years. British then. <laughs> Commonwealth, I guess. Commonwealth. Commonwealth humor. I'm sorry. I didn't mean. <laughs> no, that's fine. No, no, it's British humor, but somehow I've absorbed it. I think that's what I, you know, the stuff that you watch or read as you're, you know, a teenager. And that was what I completely lived on. So all of that sort of thing, French and Saunders and all of that. But I was nervous about it coming out in the US because it's portrayed as a British Oh, not sorry. It's portrayed as a funny story. Like that's kind of in all the materials, but I'm like, not, not laugh out loud. Do you know what I mean? Like, can we just tell everybody it's not, there's no jokes in there. Do you know what I mean? There's no callbacks and buildups and all of that sort of thing. It's just those little observations and absurdities. And I've always think of it as it's the British office compared to the U S office TV mm-hmm. show. So if you didn't like the British office and it was too dark, maybe you know what I mean it's going to be more of a struggle but if that's what you if that's your flavor then I'm glad that people enjoy it that way even like your really subtle scenes like when Patrick asks Martha if she likes he's like do you like old movies and she's like no no one does and and, and he's like okay want to go at 7 30 and she's like of course <laughs> yeah and he's like, I mean, do you want to so yeah. but you had like no he said she said it's just like Perfect. I don't know. It's just funny. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And it it helped as well to kind of have that 
personality of hers to fall back on when there are scenes like she finally acquires this diagnosis after 20 years of searching or 15 because you know the last five she gave up and decided it was just her awful personality and that she's a terrible person and that was what was informing all her decisions but she reaches this moment where the psychiatrist who she's sort of finally found makes this pronouncement and I was glad to have her ability to kind of reduce that moment right down to a joke rather than her having to express that, oh my goodness, you know, the mystery of my existence has been solved because we don't talk like that. We would never say that in the context of a doctor's office. We would say what she says, which is, oh, well, if it's that, I hope it's the 24 hour kind, you know, because you diffuse that emotion that's too extreme a lot of the time. And I sort of, so I was glad to have that function to rely on. And then of course there's her sister who takes it a level further in terms of the darkness and the the humor and that sort of thing. So they're a good, they were a good pair to be able to explore and fall back on. And tell me what part of the mental illness piece attracted you to writing about it. There were so many scenes, like even when she's flushing the pills down the toilet, for instance, or when she's first with Jonathan or the moment where she's back in the house and she finds like an old discarded expired prescription for whatever. And she's like, I'm just going to take this and see what happens. Um, yeah. All her time on the couch and just, oh my gosh, you just like wanted to, hu- I felt like I wanted to hug her so many times and like, you know, oh, kind of that's good. Got her mom yeah. across the face. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Yes. She's tricky. Celia, her mother's tricky. I think it is because I had read somewhere a long time ago that women will face a much longer journey to get a diagnosis than men with particular conditions that I researched into when I thought I might use one real condition in there and not the kind of amalgam, the unnamed amalgam that I eventually went with for all sorts of reasons. I had read that, you know, in some cases, not with anxiety and depression, but with the more complex, the schizophrenia or bipolar, usually it will take a man, say on average five years or something to find a diagnosis. A woman will be looking at upwards of a decade because there's that residual, I guess, you know, discrimination or imbalance in the medical system where she's hysterical, she's hormonal, she's premenstrual, she needs a baby, you know, whatever it is. We don't, I think, and still to this day, to a degree, necessarily get the same acknowledgement of being aware that something is wrong because men don't really go to the doctor unless they're, you know, sort of on, on death door. So if they come in, they must be serious. But if we come in, we had a free morning and decided to, you know, go chat to a doctor about some tiny invented condition. So I think I wanted to explore the difficulty of her actually, not so much what the condition was like, but what it was like to try and find that and to be misdirected and to be dosed up with things that didn't work and she knew it was making her worse or doing nothing and the trial and error in that because that's exhausting if you know for people who I think have been through that or people with any kind of chronic pain migraine or whatever it is to try and find someone who will listen to you and not patronize you know very first doctor you see her going to when she's just experienced this kind of mental collapse at 17 which she describes as the little bomb going off in her brain he sort of it's like it's so obviously glandular well what we call glandular fever I think that's mono in your country it's so obviously mono I'm not even going to test for it and there's no medication I can give you but you know you know what teenage girls are like they love a tablet so here's an iron tablet I'll give you something to swallow kind of thing and so she leaves feeling mad from that first moment you know or minimized and so I think that was the part of mental health that interests me rather than the ins and outs of necessarily what it feels like from the inside which I'm maybe not so qualified or didn't feel so qualified to 
present as fact. That's funny you say that because in the book, I don't think you changed it to mono. So I was like, what? Because then you said, you know, to oh. your father, like, oh, she's been kissing too many boys. And he's like, have you been kissing boys or something like that? And she was like, no. And I was like, why would she be kissing boys? Anyway, now I understand. Oh, glandular it. fever is apparently transmitted that way. It was no, mono is transmitted yeah. that way. Oh, good. Oh, yes. good. No, no, I just, I just missed that reference. Yeah, no, fair enough. And, you know, another element that I thought was so sort of poignant throughout the book is her relationship to the sort of unborn child along the way, right? This fetus that she always refers to. And even yeah. the moment when she's on the the double-decker bus with her head to the window and she sees like a mom with a book propped up on her belly, which I feel like I could do these days even without a baby <laughs> in my belly. <laughs> and like another mom comes over and they're chit-chatting and she's like, okay, right then, I'm not gonna have kids. you know. And then of course things change and change again yeah. and all this stuff. So tell yeah. me a little bit about her you know, ambivalence, I guess, and fear. I feel like a lot of it was fear. Yeah, well, she is she is instructed by sort of, I guess it's doctor number two who prescribes her something. And this is still in her very late teens and says, if you take this, you need to be really careful not to get pregnant because this, will, this is unsafe for a fetus. And I think in the way that, you know, as we get older, especially at my age now, I've learned that doctors, you know, I mean, bless them for all that they do and all of their hard work and sacrifice for us and care for us. But there are doctors who, I guess, make these pronouncements as if there's truth. And I think when you're Martha's age or teen, you just accept them. You don't question that's a doctor. They know they, the certificates are all over their wall. And so I will just take that, you know, advice or that diagnosis wholesale. When you get older, you know, especially I guess if you've had children and there's that massive opinion and conflicting opinion and like, actually, I know, I instinctively know, and I will go and find a doctor who will listen until, you know, that's kind of acknowledged, but she takes it as truth that these pills are dangerous. And even though she will come off those, there's something about that message that she absorbs that the pills are dangerous, but the extension of that is that she is dangerous. And she has this condition that she doesn't understand, but develops this sense within herself and then stokes it and expands it, that she would be dangerous as a mother and that she would be unsafe to a child. And so this is whether or not she even wanted children at that age, which we're far too young to kind of imagine ahead that much. She goes into marriage and into that age with that pre-knowledge. And so that informs all her decisions and she decides that it isn't safe. And she has a brief kind of flirtation with the idea when she, in that disastrous first marriage to Jonathan, who's this very charismatic, you know, art dealer who creates this sense of her being amazing and he's the first woman to kind of you know and they're so wrong for each other you can sort of see it from the disastrous public proposal which doesn't suit her at all to you know their very quick marriage and very short engagement and he sort of tells her it'd be amazing let's do it and she briefly wants to believe that maybe she's the person that Jonathan thinks she is and so she goes off her medication instantly crashes. And then it sort of proves to her, I can't live without this medication. You know, it's true. I never should be a mother. And so but I think the function of that for her, and she's obviously someone who isolates herself and puts herself outside regular, I guess, female experience. She doesn't have a lot of female friends because as she gets older, they all have children. And you know what it's like, it's hard to keep finding that common ground, whether you're the mum with, who can only talk about your kids and you've got this single gorgeous friend who blows in and tells you about the big night she had before, you know, the night before. And it's hard to find that commonality, but it pushes Martha outside the female experience. And so she ends up feeling disconnected from other women who've done that and become mothers. And then of course it challenges her relationship with Ingrid, who is 
crazy fertile and is just busting out these babies every kind of 18 months. So that's, I guess that her relationship, but then there's a twist in it where we find out what her relationship has really been like to motherhood. Wow. So <laughs> you mentioned at the beginning, so now I have to go back to this, that your coming of age was more at age 40 with kids and everything else. So yeah, what was the turning point for you? Did something happen or was it just growing up or tell me if there was a moment? Yeah, or... yeah. no, definitely. Well, I mean, really the opposite to Martha, I got married when I was 22. So at this point I've nearly been married for more than half my life. And I had my first daughter when I was 25. So I almost have no experience of being an adult without also being a mother. But so I, I guess it's almost a case of, you know, if you don't have that extra decade, I guess, to explore who you are and do all of those things and focus on yourself because you're focusing on this little baby instead. And then her sister who came along, you know, two and a half years later, you just get absorbed into that. And you do, I think, would it be safe to say that we all lose a little bit of identity or we all kind of have our essential selves slightly broken down by that experience and we have to rebuild ourselves. So it wasn't until they were teenagers where I sort of emerged from that tunnel and went, oh, like I never did that growing up thing. So I guess I better do it now because, you know, it's not like you don't develop maturity as a mother, but I think as a person, I was stopped at 25. That's where my exploration of my own character had you know, had taken its temporary 15 year pause. And so I kind of had to look at myself and be like, am I still acting in ways that I was at 25, especially in my marriage, I think, because you know how that, and this is what I put into Martha and Patrick, but you know how that dysfunction, whatever your dysfunction is in your relationship, that got built in very early. Like that was probably already there before there was even a ring on your finger. And so if you don't address that, it becomes so embedded and you find that 15, 20 years later, you're still acting out of that one place or that one disappointment that never was resolved. And so I think there was a lot of that that was waiting for me on the other side of children. So then it was like, okay, I'm going to take a pretty cold look at, you know, who I am and weed out some stuff that should have been weeded out a long time ago. So I think it was that, it was that slow development of like, and feeling when I hit 40 that like, oh, I am a bit more of a grown up than I was. And I do actually know stuff about, you know, how things work and that sort of stuff. It reminds me of the scene when she goes to breakfast, well, kind of breakfast, but she's still in the bridesmaid's dress and everything with Patrick <laughs> and he's taking forever to order. And she was so happy because she didn't, I loved how you said how she, she's tired of people letting her go. I'll let you go. I'll let you go. She's like, no, I want somebody to have me stay. I want him to stay. Yeah, exactly. So, and she's like, I love that he took his time ordering. And she's like, later on at their like anniversary, you said how she like grabbed the menu from him and was like, she's oh, like, just choose something. Exactly. It was this, it had evolved into that thing of like, I can't, bear that thing anymore. That thing was so charming at the beginning. And now if you do that one more time, you know, it's over between a divorce space kind of look happening. So yeah, I think, but that's what I loved exploring about that long arc. You know what I mean? Of a relationship. Cause there are of course those intensely romantic proposal moments or whatever moment you sort of, they're the highlights, but there's a lot of low lights or at least midlights you know what I mean yeah. in a long relationship <laughs> where it's like you're together and you're at home and you're cooking dinner and where's the romance in that you have to try pretty hard to find it but sometimes those greatest moments of connection are on the sofa or on a walk and and I think that was fun to explore them and in between the start when you meet them and the end what happened in the middle is the interesting part to me 
So Meg, what are you working on next? Do you have another novel in the works? I do. I do. I do. I'm in that phase where I'm like, oh goodness. And it's exciting. It's really exciting because I realized it's the only way to leave these characters behind is to go and find a new set of characters because Martha and Patrick in their whole world has been my world for two years. And it's a real challenge to let them go and belong to other people. And which is, you know, I'm so happy to do it, but it's hard to break that connection because they do feel real. Even though when authors say that, I used to just think, oh my gosh, they've lost their minds that you made them up and now they're talking to you. Do you know what I mean? But it actually happens. And so that's what I'm most enjoying at the moment is to find out who this next set of people are. Well, getting to feel nostalgic about the last the last crew. But yeah, so I'm working away and there's some, I'm writing for screen as well and doing bits and pieces like that. So it's busy, but for me, it's about creating that belief again, that no one's ever going to see it because that was so key to my experience that I have to try and convince myself somehow, which is getting harder and harder because of people like you, like (laughs) like getting the book out there, which I'm so grateful for, but I'm like, I have to pretend that I'm completely anonymous again. So I'll see, I'll see how it goes. I just, I started writing something the other day and I felt so panicked that people were going to see it that I eventually at the top of my document typed draft one of three. Oh, that's a good idea. Just so that I was like, I'll write two more. No one's going to see this one. That is such a good idea. And isn't it funny because George Saunders describes that. I mean, he's just my absolute icon in every single way. He describes it as having to self game that you have to trick yourself into doing this thing because I guess you know, it's difficult work, but I think the tricky thing about it, I imagine if you're a surgeon, you turn up to your laparoscopic appendectomy knowing how you're going to do it. You know what I mean? You've done it 50 times before you do it exactly that way. Again, that'll be a perfect job. You don't have to worry that maybe this time you've forgotten, maybe your talent for appendectomies has left you. Do you know what I mean? It's, there's nothing left in the tank, (laughs) but with writers, we sit down, we're having to recreate from nothing again, And again, every single day and to face up to that, what feels like those limitations and the edge of our talent, that's not going to take us to the extent that, you know, we need to go. So I, my equivalent of draft one of three is I label, like I name all my documents, like you can do this. You've done it before and you'll do it again, dot, doc. You know what I mean? So every time I look up, there's this crazy, I mean, it's insane. A lot of madness goes down in this little shed that I work in. So but whatever gets you there, don't you think? You find your tricks. The longer 100%. you work, you, you find what works for you. But I might try that. That's what I write on notes to my daughter, literally, that you've done it before and you can do it again. You've got this, you know. Yeah, <laughs> We just exactly. all need to, like, take the notes we leave for our kids or something. Exactly. We need to be our own cheerleaders. It's so true. It's so um, true. Even if it makes you feel crazy. Yes. Well, I already feel crazy, but yeah. Do you have any other advice? This was, you already were sprinkling in bits and pieces, of course, but any advice to aspiring authors? Oh, yes. No, I, I have definitely, at this stage, I have definitely acquired a lot of tricks like that. I think that, I think it's about finding what works for you and then sticking to it and not waiting. Just if you can't write today, there's no way you're going to write tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? There's no perfect tomorrow coming where suddenly you'll sit down and there'll be this enormous flow of words. And you do hear lots of writers explain that it's a muscle, which is true and that you build it up as you keep going. My, I think definitely if you set a word target for yourself, maybe 500, because it's not impossible to face 500 words a day. And if you get, if you do a great 500, you'll be have momentum in the next day. But if you're doing it, if you're having a terrible day, 
still just 500. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not too intimidating, but I think that you need to do that 500 every day and turn up. And I know with anything I'm doing, I need to work on it seven days a week because if you fall out of it for two days, it is so hard to get back in and you kind of then have to go and read over it to remember where you were up to. And that takes a week by the time you get to a certain limit. So even if you just look at it and correct some grammar or something just every day to turn up for the work, because it just saves you a lot of re-entry. I think it's re-entry is painful and it's a, it's a lot of time spent doing that. So I think that's, I think that's what I've learned, but yeah, just to find your own way and then stick to that. Sounds like how I feel about the gym. It's like once I take a few days off, it's like impossible. Right? Exactly. Doing like it every day. Like, been, yeah. Just another yeah. day, you know. Exactly. Otherwise, you're like, I've never been to the gym before. I, yeah. I physically don't know how to do this. Like, this is too. What's going on? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We, we trick ourselves. We learn the tricks to get ourselves there. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you, Meg. Thanks for talking about Sorrow and Bliss. I really loved it. I love the characters too. So I see why you're very attached. And, you know, maybe they can. Maybe we can do some cameos in your next book, like the Jefferson, oh, like, you know, exactly. like this. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Where, like, they pop in up. for coffee yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, I'll write the story of the woman who had the canapé and we'll see Martha from the other side. Exactly. See if she was, you know, did the, that could did be a fun exercise. <laughs> exactly. But thank Jefferson. you so much. I just, it's been lovely to chat to you. And I'm so grateful to anyone who's read the book or passed the book on to someone or, you know, posted about it because it, there would, it wouldn't exist without all of that. So I'm really grateful. Thank you. Of course. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Slumberkins, for sponsoring today's episode. Again, use code ZIBBY10 to get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 